Hello again, we're back. I hope you uh, enjoyed part one of the podcast and we've got now part two and we're going to talk about um, a few new things that are happening in Australia. Uh, they're catching up with our proportionality test. We're going to talk about solicitor and client disputes about costs uh, and we're going to wrap it up in about another half an hour. So welcome back. For us, for us, that sort of that straddles a couple of different mm. jurisdictions. We've had some court-imposed discipline about um, group litigation for some time, and in, in fact, there's recently been a, a you know a, quite an unpleasant squabble in the Volkswagen emissions oh, yeah. litigation as to um, you know who should be the lead solicitors and you know whether somebody's encroached on somebody else's ground in terms of the clients and so on and so forth. Which of course the you know defendants sit back rubbing their hands, no doubt, at that. Um, and, and certainly in terms of being able to control um, whether people can enter group litigation or not, there, there's, there's quite a mature um, jurisdiction about making sure that um, certain claims are stayed um, pending the outcome of test cases and so on and so forth so that there aren't pockets of cases that are springing up all over the place. Sometimes you can't help it. I mean, and certainly the larger the potential group, the more fragmentation is possible. So certainly within the um, interchange fee litigation that's been affecting Visa and MasterCard, so on and so forth, often by um, by retailers uh, more than consumers. The consumers are a whole different, uh, different, different uh, kettle of fish. Um, there's been pockets of litigation springing up all over the place, some in the commercial court, some in Chancery Division, so on and so forth, um, and uh, that they haven't been able to pull it together um, as coherently as they would do in some other forms of group action. But at least, you know, you know it can be done. Um, On the consumer side, um, which is the, um, you mentioned opt-in and, well, there's opt-in and opt-out collective actions. That's really brand new for for us. Um, And uh, it's it's not really got off the ground. You know, I I think possibly the... um, the reason for that is because the the most um, the most newsworthy case is actually the consumer side of of, uh, of credit card interchange fee litigation, which is huge. You know, it's like everybody's a claimant. You know, if anybody's ever had a Mastercard or something, you know, is essentially a claimant. And to test that, to test out these knotty principles of you know how do you work out damages and you know so on and so forth which is what it fell down to. It's going to appeal, I understand, but it is what it, the scheme fell over, you know, at the first hurdle. Um, but very interesting from our point of view is, you know, what do you do with costs? Because we're so used to costs have to belong to somebody. They're not just something away in the ether. You know, the only cost that ever um, uh, belonged to lawyers were legal aid costs. You know, which which in our practice we haven't touched for years. You know, but but everything else is it's got to belong to somebody, even if the link is a bit tenuous. You know, with um, uh, with, with conditional fee agreements and so on and so forth. Um, but but certainly, you know, the the ideas were um, very very new. That with Mastercard, I think the idea was I think there would be a lot of the recompense for funders would be out of unclaimed pots of damages and so on and so forth. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So we had we've had a couple of those um, bank fee cases, uh, which have run as class actions, and they've run as I think I'm right in saying that they've run as open class actions. Yeah. 
um, they've resolved. They've res- yes, they've settled. I think there was one against the National Australia Bank is the one I'm thinking of, and you know they've settled. Um, they've been. The litigation funders would have taken... It was before common fund cost orders, so they would have taken their cut based on those claimants who actually had signed up. One of the issues that we're facing is that issue of proportionality of costs. Yeah. And, in fact, there was a decision this week... or Sorry, no, today's Monday, isn't it? It So last week, last week in Australia, um, where a judge again in the federal court has reduced the solicitor's legal fees and the litigation funders fees based on the fact that the, the, he considered that the proportionality, the proportion out of the settlement of those was disproportionate to the recovery for the claimants. Um, We've had that run as an issue previously with another federal court judge saying, well, look, you know, part of the problem is that, you know, with all the best will in the world, they assessed it as being reasonable prospects of success and they had to do the legal work and, Mm. you know, at the time it wasn't unreasonable. Um, I'm involved in a matter at the moment where a decision is pending, where there were two different class actions. The the company, the subject of the class action, has gone into administration. So there's a limited amount available. Right. Um, And, you know, again, it comes back to that proportionality, but with the two firms competing for that pot effectively. Yes, 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 yes. um, Again, you know, is anything going to go back to the claimants? Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, all of those sorts of issues. So we're still coming to terms with all of that sort of yeah. aspect to it because they're not they they might be being run on a you know, effectively conditional basis from the litigation funders perspective, mm. but they're broadly not being run on a conditional basis from the law firm's perspective, albeit that sometimes the law firm part of their fees will be conditional. So 20% of their fees, yes. for example, might be yes. conditional. Yeah. It's very common over here for, for firms in long-running cases to have a situation where the funding takes the edge off it. They haven't yeah. got total risk. Yeah. You know, they, they've, they've got, you know, yeah. perhaps they get two-thirds of their costs or something like that. Uh, uh, and sometimes we've been involved in um, a kind of almost an internal audit function mm. where where the, the, the law firm is concerned that they're not going to be overdrawing, you know, drawing down too much mm. on, a, on, a, on, a, on a fund because they want to make sure that there's enough left at the end and they can see it out and, you know, whatever happens. Um, so we do a kind of a vulnerability analysis on their whip, you mm. know, that, 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 kind of, uh, that kind of work we've done once or twice, which is unusual, non-traditional cost mm. work, if you like. But... You mean, you, you, it's come up a few times in the conversation already and um, we haven't dealt with it head on yet, but um, proportionality, I have to tell you, is, is, not, um, is, is not a very happy place for, for in this jurisdiction at the moment. Um, I mean, we had it... Proportionality as a concept came in with the um, CPR in, in sort of 2000, 1999-2000. Um, and it was a very woolly test, first of all. 
So there was a, the first test came along and it was uh, judges needed to understand the difference or needed to devise a difference, find a difference um, between reasonableness and necessity. <laughs> if, so if, if, something, if something looked, if something only needed to look disproportionate as a, as a claim for costs, um, a sort of an eyebrow test, if you like, is how it was uh, how it was expressed. Then the test that would be applied to whether you'd get that back or not was necessity rather than reasonableness. And then even then, people said, "Well, that even necessity doesn't mean absolutely had to had to had to do it, you know." And that's the only test. If you only and if that's the only possible anyway. thing that you could do. Mm-hmm. So that 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 was that. that a lot of specialist cost barristers are very well out of opening submissions, setting the scene, telling the story of the case and why it wasn't, uh, 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 why, why a matter, a cost, they might look high, but they're not disproportionate, you know, because, because, because. Um, and when, uh, when Sir Rupert Jackson came along, um, he decided that um, uh, this needed reform. But the way they did it, has turned out to be, as as I predicted, I have to say, and I wasn't alone in it, you know, alone in predicting it, really problematic, which is that you could go now, you can go through, if your costs are to be assessed on the standard basis, which is the, you know, the, the, the default position is what most people have, um, that you can go through a whole assessment of costs, you can go through, you, you, you might have had them budgeted, you're then going through an assessment process to particularly concentrating perhaps on those matters that are run over budget or, or if they're under, but the paying party says, look, there's a good reason they need to be under, uh, even further under. Uh, it, that, that's the sort of shape of the argument. You can get to the end of that process, find out what reasonable costs have been, and then the cost judge is supposed to sit back and say, but you know what? Even now, that's just like too much money. Mm. And just mm. go, mm. and take a bit more off. Mm. Um, now, that's just um, unworkable for, for most people, I find, be, be, because um, like the source litigation, most cost disputes that we get involved in, that's our job, that's our day job, they don't go to assessment. They might get close to it. You might even have a preliminary issues hearing. You might even have the first couple of days of a long case, you know. But by the but if it's gone even that far, we're used to the situation whereby, you know, with smoke coming out of the calculators or, or laptops afterwards. Once you've had the first couple of days, you know which way the wind's blowing, and you can you can you can settle it. Um, not now, because you're waiting for this potential sting in the tail that is totally unpredictable. And, and the appellate decisions we've seen so far are just replacing one judge's subjectivity for another. Mm, if they've altered say, it. It's, so, it's, you know, it's what, so what's the point? Mm. What is the point? Um, so good luck with that. So how, you know, are you, in Australia, are you approaching proportion, the proportionality test in a sort of slightly different way to, that, that are, to these two imperfect systems that I've just described? So... I don't think we're approaching the proportionality test in any particularly consistent way whatsoever. Uh, you know, it, it really it really still is, there's very little case law on it. It's a judge-by-judge judge basis. Um, so, and, and again, I'm talking about a proportionality test largely in inter-parties litigation in Victoria. Right. Because we have a 
Civil Procedure Act that talks a great deal about proportional costs. We've seen a number of decisions in the um, probate court where, where, you know, there's a dispute about a will and there is a very proactive judge in Victoria in that division who does have some cost background and she has been extraordinarily proactive about expressing her views about the fact that the fees which are proposed to be recovered from the estate by law firms are disproportionate to mm. the work that's required or the quantum of the estate or whatever. And, and she actually directs that the parties uh, submit cost budgets relatively early on. Um, but there's not any great learning coming out of that about how you would assess when something is disproportionate. It's it's a gut feel thing, mm, you know, it's mm, what mm. you're describing, it's sort of the subjective thing. So, yeah. you know, if, if I got a judge on a good day, I'd end up with a different outcome than if I got a judge on a bad day yeah. sort of thing. Um, we haven't even addressed this issue about, well, what does proportionality mean? So is it the overall proportionality, which is what you're talking about, mm -hmm. or could fees for an individual piece of work be disproportionate? And I yeah. always use the example, so I'm suing for $10,000, but I choose to engage a, a, a QC because it's my matter of principle. You know, I hate whoever I'm suing. I've got deep pockets yep. and I engage the QC at $20,000 a day mm -hmm. to defend my $10,000 claim. Yeah. But overall, the fees for the I'll, – I'll use a different example. Let's say it's a $100,000 a day a claim. I'm engaging the QC for $20,000. On the face of it, $20,000 for a $100,000 claim is disproportionate. Mm. But if the QC manages to resolve it very quickly and therefore the overall fees are only $21,000, that may not be disproportionate to a $100,000 claim. No, no. Okay? Mm. You know, you can work the figures as you want to. But it's that issue of, so do we look at the QC's fees and say they are clearly disproportionate or do we look at the overall fees at the end? We haven't even come to terms with that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, we did that a bit. Yeah. You know, we, we, well, we did that quite a lot, you yeah. know, actually, because there were, we did develop case law that said that um, even if overall the cost didn't appear, didn't appear to be proportionate, you can pick out pockets of cost that might be disproportionate, disproportionate. you know, nevertheless. Yeah. Um, that was under the old test. Yeah. New test is just too too new. Yeah. Um, and yeah. there are even, so there's even, a, there's even a, a school of thought now, uh, I think within some of the specialists, one says... Uh, why go all through that mm. and look at it at the end? Shouldn't mm. you be looking at the beginning? Mm. But, I mean, that's not what the test mm. says, mm. you know, mm. um, although I can see the attraction mm. in that. Mm. Um, and um, in terms of the in terms of the, the, the way you'd look at it, you look at proportionality in a different way if you're a defendant than a claimant. A claimant, the test is more what should they reasonably have been mm. claiming? What was mm. the sort of top of their reasonable expectation as opposed to mm. the kitchen sink that some claims become mm. um, and with a uh, with a, a, a defendant if they win then it's more a question of okay well they, they've you know you've got to judge the proportionality on just what was facing them mm. you know so even the inflated mm. claim if you sort of mean so if the mm. if the if the claimant wins the wins the inflated claim 
same damages, mm. then the, the proportionality test is on a lower figure probably than had the defendant defeated it, defeated mm. that same claim, in which case it would be based on the higher figure, that, mm. that type of stuff. Um, but we also have had, um, you know, huge numbers of uh, hours and lots of expertise put to factors other than money, mm. right? Mm. So in cases where there's reputational damage and so on and so forth, it's, you know, well, well what price can you put on? I mean, you can imagine the flowery submissions mm. and so on mm. and so forth. Mm. Some we've had a hand in drafting and so on to try and justify uh, 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 cases where costs are out of whack with damages. You know. And look, so. the, in those probate cases that I've spoken about, you know, the judge has taken the approach, this is prior to any assessment taking place. So it's simply tell me what your costs are and I will, at first glance, consider whether or not they're proportionate or not. Yeah. And where she has said, I am concerned, then she allows the lawyers to go back and make submissions to her about why they're reasonable and why they're not reasonable and yeah. so forth. And I, I had one recently where I had to go through and actually prepare an affidavit effectively do an assessment on a different basis, utilising scale, and sort of explain my view about, you know, why there were circumstances that perhaps she wasn't aware of that had caused the fees to be what they were. Um, and it went no further, so she presumably accepted whatever I'd said there. Um, and... You know, the cases, the class action cases I'm talking about where, again, you know, fees have been adjusted because a judge has considered that they are disproportionate, they're in a, they're in a practitioner-client context and we've got the proportionality test in play now also in the practitioner-client context. So we've had fees reduced by the regulators on the basis that they were disproportionate to the outcome. But again, it's tended to be in the context also of what the fee estimates were in the first place and whether or not the work was reasonably undertaken yeah. or not. Yeah, yeah. So, um, again, those decisions aren't particularly insightful about how they got to where they got to. Yeah, no, I so, understand that. Yeah. I understand that. Um, so there's, I mean, I, I, I it, it wouldn't, it doesn't need a particularly um, efficient crystal ball to sort of mm. suggest to you that the ways you're going to, the way that the ways that you're going to interpret proportionality in Australia are probably going to occupy you for a long time in the same way that it does over here. And Look, not. well, it's interesting though because I, you know, after Jackson, I saw that we had fair fair bit of room to actually argue about proportionality. It really mm. hasn't taken off. No, okay, fine. Um, it, it's... Part of me wants even, to say good, you well, know. <laughs> well, yes and no. So even with our Civil Procedure Act, which, you know, then, which came in in 2010, so about the same yeah. time, um, and the clear provision in there, and there's a number of provisions in relation to how you conduct a matter proportionately, um, we didn't have any significant decisions for a couple of years and then we had a major decision in relation from our Court of Appeal, um, which again was sort of a proportionality decision, but basically it was, you know, saying um, it was a security for costs application in a very complex piece of litigation. Uh, we had... Um, 
an Indian couple uh, come to Australia by a Burrup fertiliser, a huge fertiliser company, buy seemingly large chunks of Western Australia, uh, you know, want to build re- a, a recreation of the Taj Mahal in Perth, you know, very wealthy, lots of money, and it all went down the tube. And they, uh, the banks sold their fertiliser company to a Norwegian, I think it was a Norwegian company, and this couple then sued the banks for hundreds of millions of dollars. I think at one stage, you know, it was sort of in the close to the billion dollar on the basis that, you know, the banks had acted inappropriately and so forth. It was a piece of litigation with multiple parties and it had been very, very fiercely contested by everyone. And um, one of the banks or a couple of the banks sought security for cost from this couple because they had returned back to India. Uh, they were awarded a very small amount of security for costs, you know, I think from recollection something like $80,000. Um, and I have to say I was involved in a different aspect of the security for costs. $80,000 to me just was not going to even touch the sides no, in this right. case. It was going to run for months and, you know, have QCs lined up at the door sort of thing. And one, and I think two of the banks appealed but the Court of Appeal said, well, you've over-egged the appeal. You know, we have had six QCs here, 24 solicitors instructing, you know, I'm picking figures out mm-hmm. here, but, you know, that's mm-hmm. the nature of it. We've had appeal books running to 12 volumes over $80,000 security for costs. This is ridiculous. And you've all now got to explain to us why we shouldn't actually order the solicitors to bear, the, solic- the lawyers to bear the costs of all of this, not to be able to recover any costs from their clients. Um, uh, remembering that the clients are our major banks yeah, who yeah, presumably yeah. know, you know, what yeah. they're doing. Um, and, in fact, you know, went further and said, and there is provision in our Civil Procedure Act, we're just reminding you lawyers that your first obligation is to the court, it's not to your client. And just because a client tells you to do something doesn't mean that you should do it. Mm. And so, you know, whack over the knuckles for everyone. And, you know, the costs involved in this are entirely disproportionate to the matters in issue. I could argue differently because, as I say, there was a hell of a lot of money at stake um, in the proceedings. And security for costs is, you know, such a tactical thing. And it was a tactical exercise to try and put pressure on these people and... Exactly, exactly. Exactly. Many corporate clients would sit there and say we're prepared to, when we're potentially facing legal bills of hundreds of millions of dollars of running this, um, you know, the costs of running an appeal and throwing money at the appeal. They're worth it. We're worth it. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. So before we we close, and uh, I could could speak to you all day, um, I'm not going to because you've I've natted on too long. I've natted on too long. Um, But... I know that when one of your um, pet interests is uh, artificial intelligence and smart systems and things like that. So how long is it going to be before we're all redundant because all of our knowledge is going to be in an algorithm somewhere? No. And, yeah. no. No? No. No. Okay. no. I, I, think, I think AI and smart systems are fantastic and will help us. Help us? Yes. 
What, you and me? You, yes, you and me. Okay. You and okay. me. Well, you for and more me. than, you know, ordering pizzas and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It'll do away with all that drudge work that we don't want to do anymore. Okay, good. I'm sure you could do away with, you know, drawing bills and stuff like that and and putting your intellect to good use in well, I hope not. cost not, arguments, Andy. It, it, it hasn't escaped my, my attention that, that you've scaled down somewhat so that your <laughs> brand is now is now Liz Harris, you know, as opposed to, you know, Liz Harris and, you know, associates. Um, and we're not quite ready to do that yet. And um, uh, so, therefore, I would quite like there to be some bills of cost to do in a few, <laughs> oh, a few I'm not years, saying yeah. you won't be doing bills of cost, okay. but you'll be able to apply your intellect to the particular... Aspects of the bills of costs that need your intellect. Well, that's very much our that no, that's that is that is very much our uh, our thing. I yeah. think at the moment. I mean, we, it has taken so long to get electronic bills mm-hmm. for interparties costs, and they, you know they're really only just starting to happen now. Um, and the 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 judge who got it over the line in the rule committee, uh, Mr. Justice Burse, he, he described it as dragging the profession, kicking and screaming into the nineteen nineties. Um, just because we're, <laughs> I would we're sort agree. Of using using Excel, <laughs> um, but 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 certainly yes. I mean, I, it, it, for us, if this is going to work, this is why I don't like you know proportionality. Mm. Really, the test. It's not because in the short term, you know, cost lawyers can earn money arguing about whether something's disproportionate or not. But the longer game, even the medium term game, is that. That if you, once you've got a brief a client about what the outcome could be and how wide the parameters are and how little influence you're going to have over that, well, they're not going to choose that way to resolve the cost dispute, and then they're not using us anyway. So it's no use whatsoever. Um, but certainly, uh, in terms of smarter, more confined arguments about. Um, those phases in budgets that have gone over and why and whether they should or shouldn't and if so by how much you can have you know you can have a sophisticated yeah. argument about that that doesn't have to take up days of court time that doesn't have to take up boxes of documents and so on and so forth you know um, and 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 if it if we can help to move it in that direction then I think it's got a future as a way of resolving cost disputes you know otherwise you know it's just going to be ADR all the way. It's not a terrible thing, but... Um... Yeah, but ADR is problematic. I mean, certainly in most of our jurisdictions now, we are having very, very few cost decisions, which is which is unhelpful. Yeah. You know, most matters settle at ADR, um, and which is unhelpful because you don't actually get guidance about resolving matters. Mm, you you do actually need to have judgments every so often. Yes, you do. Um, and it also doesn't help consistency in decision-making if there aren't judgments to actually give guidance. But, you know, I'd, I'd agree with you. I think certainly from my perspective our system needs to change. I think doing these, you know, you know the, the old-style bills of costs that you got rid of, oh, God, 20, 25 years ago, you know, of how many folios in a, in a letter and, mm. and so forth. It's just not helpful to anyone. We've also got the problem that we've got a very strong practitioner-client dispute practice going on. Okay. Um, and we have, we've got some cost firms who are quite, 
proactive about finding clients who can complain about yeah. the fees yeah. of their, their prior clients. And I need to be a bit careful here because I'm actually now on the equivalent of the SRA. Okay, yeah. Um, so I'm, a, you know, part of the regulator. Um, but, you know, w- w- when I said that we've actually got to have that cost transparency at the outset, the our consequence of not having that cost transparency and not giving an accurate estimate at the outset or updating the estimate is that if your fees haven't been paid, you can't sue for them without going through a cost assessment. Right. And on every bill to a client, it sets out all the warnings. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and procedures available to a client. And then they have 12 months from the last bill Mm -hmm. to review every bill that's ever been rendered. Okay, every bill. So I had a client last year, I had a law firm client last year. He had acted in a probate that had been on foot, on an estate matter that had been on foot for 10 years. Mm. And it it had all the hallmarks of, you know, every problem that you could have in an estate. Um, uh, Disabled beneficiaries who hadn't been appropriately um, accommodated for, um, you know, disputes between the beneficiaries, disputes between the trustees, um, you name it. Yeah. Every issue. Um, and, you know, he'd been acting for 10 years. They review his bill. Yeah. That, you know, they, they, they complain about one bill. It potentially opened up 10 years of bills. Yeah. You know, just crazy stuff. That, I mean, we, we, can't, we can't do that. Mm. I mean, we're, we're close to it, but we can't do that. And, and in fact, um, just to prove, I do read the case, the case is now and again. There, there, was a, there was an appellate, we're recording this uh, right at the beginning of December, but there was an appellate decision last uh, week in relation to the status of what a bill was. Was it a final bill or an yeah. interim bill? And uh, we've had a, because we, we have those time limits too, you know, so, but, but if you've paid a, uh, if you've paid something after a year, it's you know you can't revisit it yep. uh, without consent. But but the status of the bill itself is therefore important because if it is not what we call an interim statute bill, then it, is, it only has the status of a of a request for a payment on account. Yep. And you would ha- and if you haven't, yep. you'd have to have a bill at the end that mops everything up, and then the time limits all run from yep. that. And there was a case as to which put the fear of God into people uh, in uh, for for a while before it was uh, before this decision came out that um, if you were going to have um, a, a monthly statute bill, I say monthly periodic statute bill then it had to include everything in that month, including disbursements. You couldn't top it up with a yes. disbursements-only invoice, you know, a, a month later. Yep. Um, because that would actually just render the whole thing as no more than a status of, a, of an on-account bill. Now, that that then would open up a lot more yep. to uh, challenge. You, know, you can't sue on it. You can't, you know, if it's not paid, you have to have the bill at the end that mops everything up. That could be 10 years' work. Then yeah, that's all open absolutely. to assessment and so on and so forth. Um, so that was a pragmatic um, sort of, you know, pro-profession sort of uh, uh, decision last week, but I, I think a very sort of sensible one. Mm. I mean, we're not finding as much solicitor-client disputes yet, but maybe we, you know, we don't we don't really look for them. Mm. We you know we treat it as something that we do for our law firm clients. On the, it's a bit like the opposite of winning the lottery, you know. Sooner or later, you know, that big finger comes out of the air and it's you, you know, and that you're going to get a you know a client that goes hostile or. Um, 
uh, and they are messy, arcane, you know, um, uh, disputes to have to deal with. But sometimes you just, you know, can't uh, can't avoid them. But yes, the pattern of the the, the pattern that you describe and the um, uh, challenging your own lawyers' fees. I mean, that in the states, say so that is the cost industry, you know, because they don't. They don't really have cost following the event very much in the same way that we do. But they, you know, everybody sues everybody all the time for everything, don't they? So they certainly do that. Um, well, that, that, that would take up more of our, um, not necessarily more of our work, but certainly more of the work in the in the court assessment system now yes. than the inter-party stuff. It really does, does it? Okay. Mm. okay. Well, I know it's an increasing trend over here, but it hasn't It hasn't reached parity. Mm. I, I know that, and I don't think the courts would welcome that. You know, they mm. haven't really got a huge amount of resources to deal with what they have to do now. Probably thinking about that, what I'm saying is it would take up more of the court face-to-face time. Yes, They don't okay. settle. They don't settle. No, exactly. They don't yeah, settle. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, the party-party stuff does. Because yeah, they're normally the opposite of commercial, aren't they? They are. The attitudes are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. On both sides. Really, yeah. The law firm is going to be <laughs> just as, you know, it's that I did all of this work, it's very exactly. emotional. It's, exactly. you know, yeah. Um, yeah. my first advice whenever a law firm client came to me was, well, we now need to have a lawyer in the firm, a partner in the firm who had nothing to do with this matter actually now handling this matter. Yeah. You need to take the emotion out of it. You so, do. so yes. Anyway. Well, on that on that neutral note, on that neutral unemotional note, <laughs> thank you very very much for uh, for coming to see us today, and thanks for that uh, chat. And I hope everybody listening has found it interesting. Um, and uh, I'll look forward to the next one. I'll just pop over to Melbourne. That sounds next year. We would love to see you. Andy. I know I'd love to come. You know other things. Um, so thanks a lot. Have a very safe journey back thank to you, you and much. your husband John, thank and you. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.